In this week's Better Hives and Gardens, we look at 2020's Hive of the Year award winners, hive number 378469. Minimise your hexagonal cell with these simple tricks. Move nectar faster with these summer pollination ideas. I just had to walk away, says former royal guard on that shock exit. We talk pollen, free buzzing and secrets of the hyperpharyngeal gland with drone number 289393. Is royal jelly the new wax? We speak to former hive 627189 queen about live after the throne. 10 tips to reshape that thorax for summer. Thinking about a vacation? Well, don't, because the hive is your life and devotion, and you will be destroyed. Better hives and gardens, because the hive is your life. Welcome to Honey, I'm Home, the first Australian podcast for anyone who wants to get into beekeeping. My name is Jai Smith, and joining me, as always, is Ben, the beekeeper jury. It's raining. It's raining outside, so if anyone can hear that pitter-patter, by pitter-patter I mean torrential downfall, it's yeah. the rain we, we sorely need. It's a refreshing change. It is. Um, and who's in the studio with us today, ben? We have Tim. Tim from Sugarbag Bees. Tim Hurd, also a, um, I, I'm, I've got a little bit of a, a crush on Tim because I read... <laughs> I read one of his bee books a long time ago before I purchased my first native beehive. So. Your first bee love? Yeah, my first bee love. Yeah, mm. True story, Tim. No pressure. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I guess I'd describe myself primarily as an entomologist. So that's an insect scientist. That's, mm-hmm. that was, that's my training. That's what I did at uni many years ago. And I love all insects. But I happened to find myself studying bees mm. early on in my career. So for my PhD, right? Um, I um, it wasn't even my idea. Actually, it was my supervisor's <laughs> idea, and I immediately warmed to it. And I did. I spent four years studying bees, native really? bees, pollinating crops. So that was where the love started. And part of that was well, I recognised pretty quickly that our little native black stingless social bees that are common in the subtropics and tropics of Australia, that they were doing a lot of this pollination. Mm. So the next step, if you know you know what's pollinating your crop, well, the next step is, well, how can we manage that? Can we right. build up the numbers? Can we manage these bees? Can we, can we make them work for us to get better crop pollination? So I started keeping them. Mm. And back then, uh, there were very few resources to help. So it was really um, starting almost at the beginning. Um, and then I went off and did a... A career, 25 years or so, working for CSIRO as wow. a research scientist and doing – I had a fantastic job, but it wasn't working with bees. It was working with a variety of other insects. I still kept my, my hand in, though. I never gave up my bees. They're addictive. <laughs> I, you know, we, that's something you should warn your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> that if they don't want to be addicted to, to bees for the rest of their life, then don't – and stop now. Stop <laughs> listening now. <laughs> what is it about bees that you find so addictive? You know, there's a few things. Um, I think there's a few aspects to them, but I think to many people, including myself, what is really extraordinary about bees is their social life. So mm. I, I should just make a point there that not all bees are social. Really? So there's this whole, huge there's a lot diversity. Of anti-social bees out there. <laughs> antisocial, <laughs> the antisocial bees. <laughs> um, but in fact, the majority of bees are not social. But if we just focus in on, on social bees, so we're talking here about the honeybees. Mm hmm. And our native stingless bees, and there are a few other social bees that 
you can find if you look hard enough as well. But the way they have this dedication to the colony, the way they they have this total commitment to making the colony work and, you know, to the point of giving up their own life and this just, this just total um, focus on, make, on, on making this colony work and, and, you know, foraging for the colony and defending the colony and building the nest and, and, all, and working together, yeah. uh, the complexity of them working together, communicating mm. um, is, I think, and we look at that and I think it's, it's kind of a little microcosm of human societies but maybe even more than that, it's more like what the perfect the human utopia, society yeah. might right, look yeah. a bit like. We certainly could be learning a lot from these. So it's almost an empathy thing where, you, you know, there, there is a, there's a shared value system there of what's possible and, and kind of seeing yourself or seeing what's possible within, within the hive. I think so, mm. yeah. yeah. Hive, hive first, really, isn't it? They, they put themselves, any, any decision that's made, it's always the hive first. Yes. Yeah. So talk us through, you know, what is the importance of native bees? Because, you know, I, I think for, for many listeners that, you know, this might be the first time they're hearing about native bees. You know, we've mentioned a few times, but it's definitely one of the early conversations that, you know, I've started to have with people to say, do you know there's a difference? And mm. do you know these things exist? Mm, mm. So what role do they play within Australia? So I would divide that answer up into two broad categories. One sure. is for n- the natural world mm-hmm. and the other one is for more selfishly for us mm. as humans, our food production systems. So, you know, in our natural ecosystems, bees are important because they, they pollinate plants. That means that they move the male sex cells from one plant to the female part of another plant so that the seeds that those plants are producing are genetic mixes. So you're getting genetic diversity, you're getting new genetic combinations, you're, getting, you're retaining and capturing the, the broad genetic diversity out there in plant populations, which enables them to cope in a changing world. Yeah. Uh, so that's just a, a fundamentally important process in, in our natural ecosystems that we have to manage. Mm-hmm. The other aspect is our food production systems, you know, it, who doesn't love food and who, who couldn't survive <laughs> without food yep. and uh, so much of our food um, is dependent on, on bee pollination. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I, I, you were talking about pollination, Tim. I'm, I'm, I am a beekeeper. I have a, a native beehive in my backyard and I have uh, European honey beehives as well. One question I know that if I had probably more studiously read your book, you'd probably answer in there, um, is around the roles they both of those types of species play or the, the different families play in pollination. Are they pollinating the same plants? Uh, is there a difference? Plants that they, they tend to target? Are they competing for the same pollination services or are they, I guess, focused on you know, different types of plants and crops? So as usual with any question you ask about, you know, anything to do with nature or biology, there's, yeah. a, there's a diversity. A loaded uh, one. Uh, it's, it's, it's loaded and you could probably talk, you know, you could probably give a lecture for an hour on, on this topic. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> but no, no, but it's – but uh, look, let's try and summarise the answer and the answer I think is that, that we have many species of bees that are, um, are generalists. Yeah. And then some right. that are specialists. specialists. So the specialists might be going – they could be going for – for just one plant species. Yeah. Well, they might be a little bit intermediate. They might be going for, say, a whole family of plants. Yep. Or they might be highly generalised and they, they, can, they can really utilise a broad diversity of plants. Even with the generalists, they have preferences. So 
there may be a whole forest out there and there may be many species of plants flowering and a particular species of bee may be able to use all of those plants over the over a year, say, but at any particular time, they'll be making decisions. They'll be scouting the environment and yeah. saying, okay, this plant's in flower. There's lots of it. It's really nutritious. The pollen's really nutritious. Plus, uh, it's not too far to fly for it, and it's not too hard to extract it from the plant. So Easy, yeah. let's go for that one. And, yeah. and they, then they'll recruit their nestmates to that plant, to that particular plant. So um, there's, there's that aspect that um, the diversity of, of, of preferences, depending on which species... Um, you're talking about so that's from the point of view of the bees but if we just look at the other side of the coin and talk about plants one emerging principle that has come out of a lot of recent studies on the pollination of our crops in the last decade is that it's not just about how many visits you get to your flowers by bees mm -hmm. in, that correlates that 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 relates to the, high yield yep it's not it's it's the, it's the diversity of the insects that are oh. visiting the flowers. So in other words, you could have honeybees visiting, say, you know, your your macadamias. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And they'd be doing they'd probably do a pretty good job. But if and you know, if you had ten visits to a flower, you'd almost certainly get that flower very well pollinated. But if you had ten different insect Unique. species yeah, right. each paying one visit to that flower, mm. then you get better level a of pollination, yield. a high yield generally in that crop. Okay. So I don't need to feel particularly bad that I have both species sitting in my backyard, that they're complementing one another in a variety of different ways around my veggie patch, for instance. I would encourage you and everybody to keep as many bees as they can. Oh, wow. Honeybees, stingless bees, solitary bees. You, you recorded that. I'll show you, I can show you that later <laughs> you on. You can, yeah, you can. <laughs> no, that's very good. Look, um, I had a little question and, I mean, I've just alluded to it um, being in my backyard. I know that... Um, when we talk about native bees, there's obviously uh, similarities and there's differences between that and the probably more, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Popularised European honeybee. What are some of the things that our listeners need to know um, that make our native bees and the social bees that we're talking about? The um, Now, I'm going to make a mess of this and I'm sure you can correct me here. It's a tetra... Gunula carbonaria. That's perfectly well pronounced. Oh, well well done. Oh. <laughs> Learning still here. sounds like yeah. pasta to it me. It does. Just, <laughs> just, yeah. Um, so yeah. So just some uh, similarities and differences. And and if I'm a I'm a beekeeper to bee, and I'm looking to um, introduce them into my local area or in my backyard, for instance, uh, particularly around the native bee, what do I need to be aware of? Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a a few things you need. So stingless beekeeping, keeping these native stingless bees like Tetragonula carbonaria, <laughs> if you want to get fancy with the name, okay. yeah, uh, that's the common stingless social bee that occurs w right down the east coast of Australia and overlaps with some big population centres like Sydney and Brisbane, and it enables a lot of people to keep them within its native range. So yes. that's a very that's a very useful bee of the eleven or so stingless bee species we have. It's the most commonly kept one. Yes. Uh, so uh, th there's a few things we need to be aware of when we're keeping these bees. They're not hard. Um, if you're a honey beekeeper, yep. it kind of gives you a lot of background knowledge that helps you, but you also have to forget some stuff yeah. because there's some major differences there as well. Yes. So hive design, for mm -hmm. example, is totally different. So you can't keep 
native stingless bees. In not in my Langstroth hive. No. Not in your Langstroth no. hive. So I often get asked, oh, can I put my stingless bees in a flow hive? So yeah. the flow hive is this honeybee hive that's designed for easier extraction of honey. And it's, the answer is no. It's, it's, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, an absolute emphatic no, you cannot. It's yeah. completely uh, designed for European honeybees and it's completely unsuitable. Yes. For, so hive design would be the first thing. Yep. And there's a few aspects of that. It's the volume of the hive. It's the uh, material that you construct the hive out of. Yes. It's um, and I'll come back to the the, the you, reason the this. reason for that. And it's the material and the thickness of the material and the way it's designed. It's all about insulation. So insulation, I'll come back to in a minute. It's a very important aspect of hive design. But I'll just run through some of the other aspects first. Um, it's the positioning of the hive where you where you place it. Um, it's the the entries and exits to make sure you've got those right. Um, so hive design is is very important, and then there's hive management aspects as well. So just going back to some of the important aspects of hive design, volume. These bees are small, smaller, and you, you have to keep them in a box of the correct volume. I think when I showed Jai a um got a poster at home that shows the actual proportions. Of yeah, the, that was really fascinating. They're obviously quite small and. Mm. Um, Mm. I don't think people realise, you know, that they've probably walked past hundreds, if not thousands, of them before and not known that they were there, or yeah. thought that they were possibly even ants on on flowers as they walk past. So, volume is a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah. The size of the individual insects is a lot smaller, and the volume of the actual nest is naturally a lot smaller as well. So, look, there are plenty of designs around, and. Um, people are still experimenting with designs. As by no means have we, you know. People being people, beekeepers being beekeepers, will never stop yeah. <laughs> uh, experimenting with hive design. And I'm sure there will be new designs come along in the near future. And I and I love seeing new design, hive designs, and new innovations in that area. But there are some good hive designs around now that we know work very well. Is so, one of those the OA OF? Yeah, well, I pronounce it the oath. The oath. Um, So the original Australian trigona hive, and it's um, you know there's no standard, there's no nobody setting standards or anything, but it's the one that's most common. Yeah, Mm -hmm. if I know about it, it's it's a little bit more mainstream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it does the job very well. Yeah, and uh, it's 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 all about volume, it's all about thickness of the material, and it's all about it being splittable. So you want to be able to reproduce these bees. And again, there's a couple of ways. So we're getting into management now. There's a couple of ways you can propagate these bees. There's a classical splitting uh, where you just simply divide the box into two and you couple each full half to an, the two halves of an empty box. Yep. Um, but there's new ways of propagating now too. That yep. were uh, one of them in particular is called budding or adduction. And that's uh, some people call that soft splitting because it doesn't involve opening the yeah. hive that might result in some bees okay. getting crushed. So splitting, that's something that I'm familiar with in European bees. Mm. Um, it's a fairly comparable, uh, I guess, way of propagating uh, a colony of bees into two. Um, but budding is not one that I've seen or heard will work with anything other than native bees. Yeah. So is that is that where you, you're joining an empty box um, with a, a working box and they're, they're essentially, I guess, filling out extra space and starting that way? Yeah, that. that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, you basically connect an empty box onto the – by a tube, tube. To, a, to, a, to a good, a work, strong yeah. colony. Needs the room. That needs a bit of room. 
And they will use it, as you say, for a storeroom initially and they'll build structures in there and they'll defend the entrance. And then uh-huh. uh, you get a lot of bees uh, moving in there as well, yeah. living in there and working in there. And then what we think happens is the bees out there, because it's it's connected by a narrow tube to the original box, they say, hey, wait a minute, I can't <laughs> smell the queen. There's no queen. We're queenless. <laughs> right. wow. And so naturally what a colony of bees do if they get big, obviously queenlessness is a it, not where you want to be. It's it's a, you have no future if you don't have a queen. Yeah. So they recruit new queens. They allow a virgin queen. So they're naturally producing virgin queens all the time. Yep. If those virgin queens are not needed, they usually they don't have a very bright future. But if they do find themselves in the right place at the right time with a, in a hive that's queenless or becoming queenless, they may get selected to take over as oh, the wow. new queen. Now, Hugh, when you bud these hives up, we think what happens is in this and new box, they say, oh, there's no queen, we can't smell her. And so they allow a virgin queen to do a mating flight and start building some brood in there. Yeah, okay. You have to watch this. As a beekeeper, you have to manage this. Mm. And when you see that brood forming, you, you disconnect you can, it. You can sever the, the tube. Away you go. Exactly. Okay, so you mentioned thickness, and I'm assuming that's because the native bee species requires more insulation than possibly not um, as well-versed as European honeybees in cooling and, and warming the hive through different temperature fluctuations? Yeah, that's exactly right, Ben. They, they, they don't maintain the conditions, the thermal conditions, the temperature control in the nest as well as honeybees can. Honeybees are absolutely extraordinary in that regard. Honeybees kind of have a behaviour that's similar. As, an, as a colony, they have a behaviour that's similar to what we as mammals have in our own bodies. That's... Oh homeostasis where they maintain a very even temperature in the nest the whole year round you know day night whereas stingless bees can't do that but they they, ah, they try to how interesting. and and the and the, the more they can the more they benefit yeah so you have to help them right 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 and uh, that's what hive insulation is all about thicker hives and we obviously have to be very careful about where we place it in our backyard because if, if if it's in an exposed position I'm guessing that if they're not able to cope with those temperature fluctuations, we might be setting them up for a bit of failure. That's exactly right. Yeah, positioning is very important. And uh, unlike honeybees, you can't leave them in the full sun mm-hmm. in most climates because if you do and you get a heat wave, it could kill your hive. Mm. So what a few we, of them lately, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get a 45-degree day Jeez. and a hive in the full sun, it will probably die if it's – yes, even the very well-insulated ones. So because this is this is a reality we're now living in where, you know, we kind Hot of have this, these fluctuations in temperature, at, at a very practical level, is it possible to just move your hive during those days? Like, what, What's your advice there? Yeah, look, that's a really great suggestion and that's one of the suggestions that came out of a, a an event that we had in southeast Queensland where a lot of people were caught off guard. We had a, mm. an extreme event. Temperatures were broken in a lot of places. You know, Ipswich, I think, had the hottest day ever at 45, so that's west of Brisbane, and a lot of hives died. And mm. that was a big wake-up for a lot of people where we, we realised, you know, we needed to look after them better. Uh, and um, one of the suggestions was, well, look, these heat waves, usually they're only one day or two yeah. days. So yep. you can just close up your hive and take it into, a, uh, into an air-conditioned room if, yep. you, if, you're, yep. you know, if you've got that ability, uh, or at least um, throw a wet rag, a uh, wet towel over okay. the hive, cool it down that way, you know, the cool, guardy, meat-safe sort of yeah. strategy where you use the evaporative cooling of a wet material, wet um, towel, 
some kind of material mm. uh, to to evaporate and cool the whole the whole hive down. No, that's what, great advice. Um, I don't know if you noticed when you were at our my place last. Uh, the spot where we have our native beehive is under a deciduous tree, which works on both ends of the scale, the shade in the, the summer months and the, uh, I guess, the sunlight in the cooler months. Oh, uh, right, yeah, but yeah. I've heard of people putting them on uh, water heaters and different things like that. Is that something that, you know, is uh, advisable or is it just, you know, looking at your own backyard and finding where is the most consistent space for temperature? Yeah, I think uh, using some kind of um, heating or cooling is is very difficult. Okay, and a few people have played with that, and they've had limit only very limited success with that. So you're really using it's a passive sort of a uh, strategy. I think is you're, you're better off um, employing. So that is positioning. Now your deciduous tree arrangement is can be fantastic. Mm. So that can work very very well. Um, the alternative is if you don't have a deciduous tree, but you have a an evergreen tree, eucalypt that provides good shade, you might find that you can just put the hive on a, a base, a stand that's easily moved uh, and step it into the shade when it gets hot yep. mm. and then just step it slowly as, it, as the weather changes and the seasons change and you're coming into winter, you can step it out slowly into the full sun in yeah. winter. So almost have like yeah, point almost like a, a giant sundial. Oh yeah, yes. You know, yeah. like <laughs> to just have these points where you know, based on the month or, for instance, you know, the, the temperature. Yeah. You know, you can move it out to these different, you know, literally degrees. Yeah, exactly right. So that's the sort of thing you can do in your backyard. But even on a on a farm, uh, we have a farm where we keep bees uh, in sunny positions because they're for pollinating strawberries, which flower in winter. So you want the bees really active in winter, so they've got to be in a sunny winter position. Mm-hmm. But that would be dangerous in summer. So what what they do is they have a summer position a few kilometres away. Um, in the in sometime in spring, they close the hive up and move really? it, and then move it back again in autumn. Much less, uh, much less threatening to move a stingless bee box than it is to to move any other type yeah. of bee box. I'm guessing, but. You're saying stepping because the practicality of that is they're geolocated to the hive, so it's a small incremental movement. Yeah, that's exactly right. So moving beehives, you do this applies to honey beehives or to stingless beehives. You do need to um, follow some some guidelines, yep. and you can just move them up to a meter. Okay, just by stepping them. Yeah, um, up a meter per day. Right, and no more. Uh, but if you do want to move them further, or you know, can't move them, you can't step them along to where that you want them to go. Then you wait till night, you close uh, them up. They're all home. They're all home and then you move them at least a metre, preferably uh, – sorry, you move them at least a kilometre. You move them, you, so you move them a long distance uh, and um, you leave them there for a few So they weeks. know they've been moved? Yeah, they leave the hive and they recognise. The individual yeah. foragers will leave the hive the next day and they'll, uh, they'll, they'll identify the fact, they'll, they'll be aware of the fact that they have been moved and they have to relearn their new position. And they relearn the new position using uh, visual landmarks. So they will fly backwards away from the hive and they'll be uh, observing and taking in and learning and memorising landmarks that will then allow them to, to fly back yeah, to right. that new position. Clever little things, aren't they? <laughs> um, what are the most common um, questions you get at your workshops? Like what, what, are, what are the, you know, whether they're entry level, whether they're quite advanced, uh, is there a common theme? Yeah, there's there's a few big questions that we get asked a lot, and one is uh, about swarming. 
So these bees have really interesting uh, aggressive behaviour mm. between colonies. They try and take over each other's nests. Is this the bee so, fighting? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They, they lock on. They to lock the on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you think of these little bees as being, they're stingless, they're, they're very gentle, you know, and they're vegetarians, you know. Bees don't eat meat like their closest relatives, the wasps. Closest relatives of bees are wasps that are predators or parasites. Mm. But bees have evolved to be vegetarian. They're using plant um, products as their as their food, pollen and nectar from flowers. So, you know, they're vegetarian and the stingless bees are stingless. So you think of them as being super gentle yeah. uh, little insects, but they have this dark side to them. <laughs> uh, not all stingless bees do it, but uh, the, 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 the pasta Stingless bee, the carbonaria, the, pa- the pasta one. I like that. <laughs> yeah, the one that's bee. common, <laughs> the one that's common down the um, the east, east coast, coast of Australia. So common in Brisbane and Sydney. Uh, it is it is aggressive, and its closest relative, which we call Hocking's eye or TH mm-hmm. Tetragonula Hocking's eye, it's also very aggressive, and they they try and take each other over. And the way they do that is they send out a scouting party to find other nests and when they find them they recruit a lot of uh of their nest mates to that nest and they and they attack it they, yeah. they attempt to gain entry and um they do that by uh latching onto the guard bees and um, and do- they it's it's a pyrrhic victory for those individuals because they will both die so it becomes a numbers game you have to put enough bees out there into the fray that you can kill enough of your enemy the bee attrition war the, the bee attrition war yeah. And it's um, it's it's brutal to watch. It's brutal, and it's it's very hard for many people to watch this because you can get a, a thick layer of dead bees on the ground. Yeah, so it happens at the entrance to the oh. hive that's being attacked. So people have got a beehive, and they come out one day, and there's what's going uh, on? Just dead bees. Dead yeah. bees. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so um, at, you know, we used to say, "Oh, well, it's nature. We just left." have to let it take its course and um, sometimes it's not a bad thing because a weak hive will be taken oh, yeah. over and it will be strengthened by mm, the yeah, yeah. But then sometimes strong hives get taken over and, and sometimes the attacks can be so prolonged that the hive can die out. The lose right. stream. It's, it can be lose-lose. So it's a really interesting behaviour. So um, what do you do? Yeah, we, can, <laughs> we now have a really great way of managing oh, okay. um, fighting swarms. So, you know, it's really it's fantastic to be able to say to people, yeah. yes, we have a solution yeah, for you. Huge. Um, it does take a little bit of effort, but basically what you do is you, you wait for the right moment when the fight is well advanced but not too advanced. So, mm. you don't, you, so what happens is those attacking bees are going to install their own queen. Mm-hmm. So you want to catch it before that happens mm-hmm. and they'll kill the existing, the existing queen one. If you and, leave it too long. Soil, right? So mm. if you leave it too long, that you know you end up with a queenless queen hive. But so um, you capture it at the right time. There's a few ways of identifying that. You close that hive at night. You wait until at night it all settles. Because it takes days. These these war oh, it can take weeks. Oh, right. And they can come back Man. a month. They can they can start a war, fail, and then <laughs> come wait back for a month. Extra troops <laughs> and then come again. Yes. Yeah, they don't give up. It's really quite intense. Uh, so they will. Uh, so you, as a manager of these bees, you wait to the right moment, and then you wait till night. Close your hive, move it a kilometer away. Okay. So these bees only fly half a kilometer. That's their maximum flight range. Five hundred meters. Yeah. Right. Yep. Five hundred meters. So you move your hive a kilometer away to be sure that they're not yep. going to come back. 
And the attacking bees will come back to that position where the hive was. You put an empty box in there. You dude. put an really? empty box. Oh, you get, a, get another hive. Yeah. Check that out. Yeah. However, to really have a good chance of succeeding, that empty box needs to be prepared in advance with some materials that make it more attractive. Yeah. Wow. Because if it's just a raw pine empty box, the, bee, the attacking bees might get, move in get and get ripped say, off. Yeah, yeah. yeah what, this, is not, this is not right. What's <laughs> this going is on? a bad Airbnb. <laughs> Yeah, so right. uh, we do. We now prepare boxes in advance by, by um, a few different ways. Um, so the details of that, I'm not sure if you want me to go into those details. Yeah, now, please. So yeah, so yeah, I'm interested because yeah. I've had a fighting swarm, and when I noticed it, it must have been on the the end of it. And at that time, I too thought, well, the you know the strongest will prevail, and mm. and and I don't know who won the war, mm. but you know the the beehive still there operational so mm. it worked out well for me but i didn't think that i could use it as an opportunity to expand my native bee apiary yeah you can yeah okay can. so what's That's in the box what's what's so prefab scaffold so of a of exactly a um the, yes yeah. it's a bit like a beer version of what we're sitting in here right now <laughs> which is not very useful to the listeners yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll all send photos <laughs> but uh when so bees as part of their process of uh, of building in an internal space, a nest for themselves, is that they, they build structures behind the entrance. So the point where they're coming yeah. and going into their hollow in a tree usually, they they naturally build a lot of structures. It's like a labyrinthine. Wow. It can be a tube and then opening up into a labyrinthine sort of structure. So if you can recreate that, that in a box, then the f- attacking bees will come in and it'll look familiar and smell familiar and feel familiar and they'll proceed with their mm. with this process. So that's the most important part, the the entrance point, and it gives them the illusion that there's a full-blown nest going on there. Yeah, we think so. And there are other tricks as well, um, but that's that's the basic. Uh, look, wow. you know, you, you could the, the, there are actually a number of other ways you could achieve this. Um, one way is if you ever have a hive that dies out, um, oh, usually do. that will become attacked by natural enemies when the hive is, is dying out. It's usually a longer process of it weakening over a period. At, in that period, natural enemies will enter. By the time you notice that your hive's in trouble, there's already a whole lot of maggots and beetle mm. larvae and all these uh, animals that live on dead and dying native beehives yep. in there. Yep. So you can't reuse that box. So you need to clean it out. But if you, when you do go to clean it out, if you leave all those structures in place behind the entrance yeah and then put it up on your sh- and clean it up otherwise and then c- keep it as a as a trap hive but all the scents and all of the exactly yeah yeah, yeah, nice. yeah all the propolis and wax and okay plant resins now this might be uh, a silly question to ask but if i am a beekeeper i know how i did it but I'll, I'll let you explain a couple of the different methods how do i go about besides from waiting for a fighting swarm in my neighbor's yard how do i go about getting my own uh colony of stingless bees. Yeah. So by propagating another colony, basically. Yeah. Um, well, there is the method we just mentioned of yep. capturing an attacking swarm, but you've got that's, that relies on pretty good fortune. If you yeah. want to be, you know, increase your chances, <laughs> yeah. uh, you need to propagate from another existing colony. Um, well, the, there's an, the other alternative is to transfer them from a location. Okay. Uh, I've noticed a, a tree that's fallen down and now they're in a weakened state kind of thing. Yeah, so taking them out of a uh, an existing location has to be done with great care yeah. and you should really think about that. Are you really th- helping them? Helping or the bees them, yeah. or hindering them when yeah. you do that. So 
I see a lot of people moving bees out of good solid logs into boxes and I think, mm, is that really in the interests of the, those bees? I yeah. think they'd be better off protecting that log yeah. and, uh, and leaving, leaving them be. Um, but if you've got them, say, in an electrical meter box oh, of course. Uh, or a, you know, an irrigation box underground in your yard, something like that, the bees can be attracted. Compost bins they sometimes move into, surprisingly. They'll find a little crack in really? a plastic compost bin yeah. and they'll move in and they'll find a clean, empty space and they'll wall off that space. And, okay. And, so it's you, a bit, bit of the natural warmth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. I think that's that contributes to it. Mm. Uh, so they move into there and then if you can cut them out and trans- transfer them into a box. So that's one way. Yep. yep. So yeah, there's that's two methods: capturing a fighting swarm, yep. transferring them from a location where they An undesirable location. Undes- Leave the bees alone if they're happy and, and content. Exactly. Yep. yep. And the the other way is to propagate them from an existing box. And to do that, we go back to those methods I talked about Bunny earlier, which are the hard and soft splitting, the traditional separation of two boxes, or the Soft splitting, the adductional budding, yep. where you connect the two boxes oh, to each other. Well, Joy, I've got a, I've got a native bee box. We should um, look into budding that sometime. Yeah, we should. Actually, I was just thinking of that. I'm like, maybe I can just get Ben's, <laughs> yeah. Ben, rest of Ben's bees. It's a fascinating process because budding involves putting a clear sheet over a box. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be able to watch what you got to really? watch. Really, and you know, you can you, some good you, content. We should film it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really great. Fantastic. To watch. Yeah, cool. Just before we start wrapping up, what, what's your advice or what do you wish people would know about native bees or bees in general? If you, if you had, you know, if there was one, one message, one take-home message, what would it be for people who, who want to jump in or, or are thinking about it? I, I'll say this for him. You should buy his book. It's a really good start. <laughs> no, I think point. I really Honestly, want to get it. Like, yeah, it, it is a fantastic read and I, I bought it um, just at a bookstore and it and it was the thing that I read that then made me interested to go and get my own. So, and, uh, plug for you from me. Uh, so. But actually, quickly on that, where did the name Sugar Bag come from? Oh, that's the name of my company. It's a very interesting question. So, it, so, a colleague of mine just wrote an article on this, what's the origin of this word? Right. And uh, he wrote that and it was published in the, uh, the newsletter of the Australian Native Bee Association. And he went through Trove to find uh, references to the word sugar bag um, through all the you know early media productions in in early Australia, and it, it's got a bit of a it's a bit murky where it came from, but it, it it's an, it's it's a term that the indigenous people use really to oh, wow. describe um, possibly sugar initially, or mm. um, but then it, it's it got converted to to mean the honey. Uh, and, and the native bees themselves. Yeah. Um, and I guess, so a language, um, a language uh, evolved in, uh, a pidgin language evolved in, in the early Sydney settlement yes. among the indigenous people. And that pidgin language um, died out locally, but surprisingly it, got, it, it spread to other indigenous parts right. of Australia. Hmm. And in the Northern Territory it's still used. Um, and in many parts of Queensland, it was still used. So this word went with the spread of this pidgin really? language. Uh, and it oh, spread around the country and it became, and I guess with the disruption to those Indigenous communities, with um, you know, them being moved around, deliberate process of 
of you know destroying their culture mm. um, and their language. Mm. Um, a lot of the original names and wor- language would have been lost, and so and it, I guess it was in their interest as well in having a in having some common terms that they could all understand. So it seems to have spread through indigenous communities, wow. and it's still used today. Um, so I've I've um, I did I did check with indigenous communities to make sure I wasn't oh. culturally appropriating mm. uh, anything when I when I started using it for my company. But to be perfectly honest, I'm, I think it was probably the wrong decision, and it's a name <laughs> that you know I'm kind of stuck with now. Because, no. And, I, and it's, you know, it's my trademark name. But I now feel that maybe I I have been guilty of some cultural appropriation, and you know maybe this word would have been better off left in the in the public domain. I'm I'm not sure. I th- I th- it. It's hard to say now. I think it's. I think you're doing it an enormous amount of respect by keeping it current. And I think you know any way we can kind of preserve culture, even if that involves commercial vehicles to get there, is is worthwhile. Mm. I think it's almost impossible to have. And this is getting a bit a bit on my other rant at the moment, but I think it's impossible to at the, at this time anyway to really. Uh, Look at social impact and greater causes without the support and not intervention, but uh, correct use of commercial applications as well. I don't, mm. I don't, I don't think it's possible anymore to do good things for the sake of good things because we unfortunately don't live in that sort of world. So I, I think you're doing it a great service, and I think just being able to tell this story is mm. a story that wouldn't happen otherwise. So mm. thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you. Cool. Well, I like to finish every episode with a terrible B joke. Um, no, the keyword there being terrible. Terrible, yep. Uh, and because we're talking about fighting today, yeah. um, how okay. do you fight a bee? How do you fight a bee? <laughs> I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I, I, don't, I haven't heard this one. I think I've heard most bee jokes, but I haven't heard this one. With a bazooka. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Dr. Tim Hurd. That's been wonderful. Uh, thank you always, Ben. Thank you for coming out and braving the rain down from Queensland. <laughs> this is insane torrential rain. So, look, mm. we really appreciate your time and, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this so more people like you can, you know, reach more people who, who want to get involved and who, you know, are keen to start. No, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please support the show by rating us on your podcast app, subscribing and sharing with a friend. To get honey, hives or your hive serviced, contact Benjamin Jury on Instagram at The Humble Hive Collective. Special thanks to Rob Peters for the creative voiceover and sound design on our special edition episode ads. Find out more about Rob by visiting robpeters.org. Artwork by Gene Heaton. Podcast produced by me, Jai Smith, who you can find at Jai Smith on Instagram and Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Your Good Get Better, the home for all our creative work.